I have to admit, while this episode has a fairly positive reputation, deserved, I don't like this episode as much as most other people do. And what's funny is that was actually further emphasized during this rewatch for the rumination. Because while the one-act play, basically, between Brent Spiner, Brent Spiner, and Brent Spiner is great, and does some really good things, and is you know generally acceptable and excellent, excuse me, everything else is just kind of not. So, <clears throat> I do want you to think about something for a moment. I want you to picture a reality in which family did not exist. So, you know... They nearly take over Earth, Picard stares out the window, the melancholy music plays, and then it cuts to this episode, just out of nowhere. You kind of see, once again, and I point that out because it really just helps to emphasize how much family was needed after that. But anyways, I digress. This script was written by Rick Berman. I know that sounds weird to say that. I'm not saying that as a negative. I didn't know that until I was doing the research for this, and I was like, huh, I... He, huh, he's, uh, well, okay, apparently he wrote this. Except he didn't write the lore parts. See, his original story was, you know, medical drama, emergency, and then Data takes over the ship and takes it there, and then there's Sung. Then he talks with Sung the end. And everyone thought that was just a weak episode. So they decided to shop, workshop it around the, uh, the office for a bit. That's why the writer's room exists, right? And everyone was tossing out ideas, and someone was like, well, not, why not bring back Lore? Since a lot of people really like Lore for some incredibly strange reason. I think he's a bald idiot myself. But I'm sorry, sorry. I'm sorry, it's hard for me to talk about Lore, given the fact that that's basically my name at this point. Like, there's legitimately more people in the world who call me Lore than my actual names. So... <laughs> Yeah. Anyways, <clears throat> so that's going to feel weird for the next however long it takes me to talk about this. But anyways, so then they went ahead and brought Laura to them, and that basically cohesed the episode, and they wrote that out, and we got some good stuff. Pillar himself uh, also wrote a fairly large amount of the lore stuff, as well as Ronald D. Moore, who, as I mentioned, was brought in basically as a result of Season 4 to be a full-time member of the writer's room. Uh, this is also when Brennan Braga started being... Well, okay... Sorry, this is right about when they were reaching out to Brennan Braga to hire him to become one of the writers for TMG. So he wasn't actually involved in this yet. We'll actually talk about his contributions uh, fairly shortly, I believe. So I'm just going to say really quick, there are several logical loopholes and basically plot holes in this episode. I'm just going to say that right now because I don't feel like covering them in, in, in individual except for one. Uh, for the most part, we're just going to kind of skip over those. Moving on. So... Bowman and Legato, who are the director and the special effects supervisor, uh, both worked on... Wait, no, that's not right. He wasn't the super special effects supervisor. It was Legato. I'm sorry. I, I don't like giving misinformation, especially on accident. So... Ah, oh, where is it? Well, I say that... Oh, it's, sorry. No, it is visual effects supervisor. There we go. Visual effects supervisor and the director... Both came in for three days before the actual shooting of the episode to block out and rehearse this episode for Brent Spiner's parts. Now, that may sound like, well, of course they did. That was actually very unusual, especially at this point in history. I think I've actually pointed this out before. Rehearsals for Star Trek generally aren't a thing. 
they don't do that. They get their lines, they practice them for a few, you know, they get their script and the teleplay for a few days before they actually go up onto camera. And then they, the, the director's like, all right, I want you to do this, I want you to do this, I want you to do this. And then they do it, and occasionally they do a couple of takes, but that's it. There's no rehearsal. There's no, we're going to run through things in advance. They just do it live, basically. And it's a method that works very well for Star Trek, but let's be honest, the reason they do it is for financial reasons. It cuts down on shoot time and work time. They had to do a rehearsal for this one because they were going to be recording Spiner, Spiner, and Spiner on separate days. And they all wanted to make sure the cameras were in the right position, all of the props were in the right position. They actually went to the old theater method where they actually would put tape on the ground to be like, here, this is where this is going to be, this is where this is going to be, this is where this person's going to be. Spiner himself has gone on record saying that it was extremely challenging because he had to change who he was acting to and reacting to, as well as at the same time understanding that he had to portray basically a completely separate character each day of shooting. And so he was Data one day, then he was Lore the second day, and then he was Soong the third day. They composited the three together. Now, credit where credit is due, that part of the episode is awesome. It really is legitimately great, and he does an excellent job of it, and I think the work pays off and shows. Paying attention, you can kind of notice how there are very few scenes where all three characters, or even two of the characters, are actually visible at the same time. And usually it's some one of them is in the background, or one of them is kind of off to the side, or something like that. And again, that makes sense, because of the way they were uh, filming this and compositing this. It makes sense to try and limit how much of those literal composite effects you need to do with it. And it doesn't really detract from the episode for me. It was just something I noticed, especially going through this time. So, the episode starts off, uh, the kid's there, and this is, the well, this is the B plot, but also the threat of the week plot. Now, that's actually interesting, because technically there's two threats of the week, lore and the kid being sick, but really, the kid being sick is the threat of the week. This is the ticking clock. This is by far the weakest part of the episode for me, in such an overwhelming way that it actually kind of bothers me. The very idea that they have to include this to make sure the stakes are real and they have to find data and they have to get them back, in my opinion, is completely unnecessary. I feel like they could have spent all this time just shoring up the A-plot and adding more characterization, especially between Lauren Data or Lauren Soong, rather than spending it on this part of the episode. Credit where credit is due, Riker actually acts as a fairly... Well, basically, Jonathan Frakes does a good portrayal of a fatherly figure. Now, he's always had that kind of fatherly approach to command, so that makes sense. But he does a good job of, you know, listen, you just nearly got your brother killed. You know, there's only so many ways you can say that to a nine-year-old, <laughs> right? So he does a good job of it. I do also want to mention pranks really quick. I don't like pranks. I don't get pranks. And I hate pranks. In fact, one of the things that a lot of my friends learn about me, like as one of the first things they learn about me, is don't prank me. Do not try to pull a prank on me. Um, that will piss me off at best, and at worst, I will retaliate. My friends don't prank me. <laughs> but ignoring the obvious threat, I don't get the enjoyment of it. Like, that's just never really made sense to me. Now, when I say pranks, I mean something more serious. You know, actual physical pranks, like, oh my god, you killed your brother. Yeah, that's a prank. That's just unacceptable. Something more mild or, or minor, eh, okay, well, we can debate that. But, yeah, I, I don't like that kind of just, oh my god, yeah, you know. Or, I don't know, Fusro dying a scientist with an with a air compression thing into a wall. You know, that kind of a thing. No, thank you. 
You're probably thinking, how did you get through college? Uh, yeah, I didn't live in a dorm. That's how I got through college. Although my girlfriend did. That was interesting. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. Point being, why is this super infectious fruit that is super deadly just in a public park that kids can get to easily? Someone explain that one to me. I know, I know, it's a Berman script, and I'm not supposed to expect that there to be excellence in construction, but, huh? <laughs> anyway, so we're just going to accept that, that there's this super deadly fruit there that can kill people and requires special... They, don't, they can't even deal with this on the Enterprise. They actually have to go to a starbase to get the medical facilities in order to deal with this. That's how deadly and terrible this thing is. <sighs> Anyways... <clears throat> So then Data starts being out of character, and as is the norm for Star Trek, everyone just kind of ignores the fact that Data's acting out of character. Notice they have several interactions with him that are out of character. They even flat out say, Data? Before they get, like, distracted, like, ooh, piece of, piece of candy. Ooh, piece of candy. Data, are you okay? Ooh, piece of candy. You know, <laughs> so then, of course, Data evacuates him off the bridge. Data goes the wrong way. Nobody thinks it's unusual, and Data takes over the bridge. Why is this vocal command only required to take over the bridge? I'm sorry to point this out, but even if we're to ignore future stuff, the fact is, at least in two points within uh, previous to this point in history, in TNG alone, vocal commands have proven to be uh, fakeable. In fact, this was actually done by Wesley Crusher all the way back in the Naked Now or the Naked Time or whichever one it is, you know, the, the awful one. So. Uh, why is something extremely high... Like, I could imagine vocal commands being fine for most things, but you'd think there'd be, like, layers of security, right? I said I would only point out one plot hole, and I'm not even at that plot hole yet, so I apologize. <laughs> so, um, so he just takes control of the ship, and then we spend approximately 15 minutes and 15 seconds, I timed it, of them trying to get control of the ship back from Data. Credit where credit is due, that part of the episode is actually interesting. I don't think it's well done. I think there's just a little bit too much of incompetence on, frankly, both sides. Data could have accomplished all the things he needed to do to take control of the ship very quickly and easily, and there's no reason he shouldn't have. He's an android who is currently not thinking, so he should have just been bam, bam, bam. And they take way too long to respond to stuff, and it takes they don't even try to any of the, the alternate methods they could do until it's too late for that alternate method to actually be successful. It's basically like if someone who doesn't really understand Yu-Gi-Oh! tried to write an episode of Yu-Gi-Oh! As in, if someone didn't know the rules of the card game, so they tried to write an episode, and so you're just you're sitting here thinking, why are you playing that card? Just play this other card, you'll win! And then he plays that card, and the other guy's like, aha, but I have a reaction just to that card. But And then it's like, well, wait, no, why are you playing that card? You could have done this other thing. I feel like both sides weren't trying, and it feels like they were trying to drag the episode out, which is funny, if you think about it, because I have a feeling that the actual meat of this episode the interactions between the three spiners, was deliberately rushed. You'll notice it actually takes up a fairly small amount of time in the episode. I mean, granted, 30 minutes of the episode of a 44-minute episode. But it kind of... They keep constantly cutting away for other extra time. I should have actually jotted down the exact percentage of how much time is spent on them. Because it really feels like it just races through those scenes before, you know, cutting back to the boring plot. But anyways, I digress. So then they do the force field things, which is nice. Why aren't they shooting him on sight? There are three separate examples during the chase scene as Data's 
walking casually down through the ship in order to get to the transporter room where they see him and they'll and they could have you know shot him and then the force field goes up and then they ah we run into the force field at least one of those the force field was not there when they saw him so they actually could have shot him at least once possibly twice the one with wharf is the other one that's a possibly so there, I've, I've been basically complaining about this episode nonstop, and I don't apologize for that since it's literally my job to be honest with you guys, so uh, here I am, being honest. But I want to give exactly one bit of praise to the B-plot, because it does serve one purpose. It shows the incredible arrogance and carelessness of Noonien Soon. It really shows how this person is someone who just does not think about things like consequence, does not consider the results of his actions or how they can affect other people, and frankly doesn't even care. And that is a very recurring element of his character. He is supremely egotistical. Even later on, he flat out says, when Data is flat out telling him about the horrible things Lore has done, keeping in mind, ignoring all the stuff with the colonists or whatever else Lore might have done, he is specifically referring to what Lore did in the episode Data Lore, and, New and Singh is just like, no, 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 no. Whatever horrible things you say about your, your brother, it doesn't matter. I mean, I can control him, is how he ends that sentence. And later on, he's like, you need to sympathize more with your brother. Maybe you should forgive your brother. And it's just... Ego. Nothing I have made. My child cannot possibly be this horrible creature you say. Right? Anyways. So we get to the meat of the episode. Soon is alive. No! This is the plot pole I wanted to bring up. So let's run through the sequence of events as is discussed within this episode and within the episode Data Lore. So Lore pisses off the colonists, and they, they petition them to shut him down. At this point in time, he hasn't even started building data. Lore then, while still active, summons the crystalline entity, whom he'd already found somehow in order to bring to the colony. Then Lore is deactivated. Then data is built, basically from the ground up, and put outside, and not activated, and then the crystalline entity shows up. I, I know I'm not the only person who has a problem with that because, you know, I, I've read people who also have a problem with that. But I have to admit, I feel like that construction of events is just completely wonky. Like, the, the whole sequence is just, wait, what? You went and then you went, huh? There's also a bit where Soong actually contradicts himself. I don't think this is a plot hole. I think this is just Soong being Soong. He mentions how Data and Lore are identical in every way, but then he mentions how Lore's circuitry was not designed to deal with the emotion chip. It was designed for Data. It won't work for Lore. And we actually see this in this episode and in later episodes as well. The idea being that the emotion chip... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that later. I'll get to that later. Anyways, <clears throat> moving on. I do have nothing but praise for Brent Spiner in this episode. I really do. He does an excellent job of portraying Data, which is harder to portray than it sounds, because it would be very easy for someone to try and play someone like Data and play them boring. You know, the same general problem with playing a Vulcan. But Spiner does his usual excellent touch. Then it would be very easy for him to overplay Lore. But Lore manages to hit a particular nuance of emotion without being too off-putting. Off and then he managed to play Sung who is kind of this wisely old <laughs> hermit kind of a thing, who also, well, let me put it to you this way. I think this is my, my best way of summarizing what I think about Noonien Soong. Soong is someone who thinks he's Yoda, but isn't. He doesn't actually have that wisdom. He doesn't actually have that experience. And he is wrong. 
just to put it into as, as simple of terms as I possibly can. So, what else can be said about that? So then, you know, he says, why did you go to Starfleet? Now, funnily enough, as we learn a little bit more later, Soong never really had a particularly good arrangement with Starfleet, and it was probably at least partially because of the fact that Soong was someone who was so discredited for his continued failed attempts to make the positronic brain. I mean, that makes sense. However, I find that amusing since his it's not so much about the fact that Data joined Starfleet as the fact that he wanted him to follow in his own footsteps. And then what follows is actually a wonderful conversation. I wrote down a couple bits of it. I didn't want to write down the whole thing because it's a long conversation, but... Why do humans have such a fascination with old things? Ties to the past. I mean, and then he's like, well, who cares about the past? We, were, we had sickness in the past. We had poverty in the past. What's so good about it? And then Data says something. And I just want to mention this because this is dialogue written by Rick Berman. <clears throat> they seem to need a sense of continuity. Why? Well, to give their lives meaning, a sense of purpose. Oh, okay. So this continuity, does it only one runway to the past? Well, no. This could be one of the biggest reasons why people have a desire for procreation. And then it keeps going because it's, it's him explaining why he felt so, so much of an urge to build data and lore. But I bring all of this up because it's fascinating that Rick Berman, who is extremely anti-continuity, actually wrote lines explaining why humans have a desire for continuity. And I quote, it gives a sense of continuity to give lives a sense of meaning and purpose. Now, I'm not saying that I need continuity in my real life to give me a sense of meaning and purpose. But in fiction, this is just for me, of course, that is probably the best summary of why I like continuity, because an absence of continuity removes meaning and purpose. Even one of the best episodes possible without continuity will just not have the same impact or meaning or purpose to me. Because it's in a vacuum, it's in a bubble. It doesn't have any impact on anything whatsoever. It's just, psh. you know what I mean? Maybe you don't. I don't know. It's, this is just my final attempt to explain continuity, although I'm sure it'll come up in the future. Anyways, so Soong is super arrogant, and Laura's just like, nope, nope, I'm out, I'm out. And I want you to remember the fact that Soong basically just reactivated Laura, which is incredibly dangerous and stupid, and then just was, was basically willing to let him leave. Now, granted, he was trying to stop him, but he was willing to let him leave and go back into the galaxy as a whole. Consider that for a moment. And, of course, well, again, it's his attitude. There's just something about that. Oh, he's not really that dangerous. Yes, he freaking is. He murdered all of those colonists. You could say that, well, he didn't do it personally, but if someone calls in a bomb, on uh, a bomb, uh, bombing, bombing run on a town and then is killed before the bombing run happens, I think we could still safely say that that person killed all of that town, right? I mean, the, the connection point is fairly strong here. And he tried to do the same thing to the Enterprise. It's just, yeah. Anyways, so of course, again, I'm not complaining, though. That is Sue. That is his mindset, his purpose, his perspective. I mean, how could my son possibly do wrong? And keep in mind, he doesn't know any of the specifics of these events. Although, he did flee before the colony thing happened, which is another thing I forgot to mention in my timeline problem earlier. Oh yeah, he also built another basically perfect android. I forgot to mention that, of his wife. That'll come up later. Let's not cover that yet. We're not to inheritance yet. What I do want to talk about <clears throat> is how Lore stops when he mentions he's dying. 
the interactions between Data and Soong are fairly what you'd expect. Soong is, of course, proud of him. Data can only do so much and responds fairly logically. His, the interactions between Lore and Data are frankly fascinating. We see in, in, the, in the interpersonal characterizations there that Lore is someone who obviously resents his father and has a great deal of bitterness, but also we can see that there is shame in there. That there is a perspective. He says this line, which, which summarizes this so wonderfully. You could have just fixed me. It was in your power to fix me. The very idea that Lore, for all of his pride, and pride is one of Lore's great, most strong character traits, for all of that pride and all of that ego, he was willing to be fixed if it meant that his father, if it meant he could have been better, a better son, if it meant his father would have loved him and been proud of him instead of discarding him like trash. That is fascinating, the way that is presented. This, now, they never actually say this outright, but I'm going to get into some theory crafting here. I've always felt that the reason Lore was unstable was basically that, for lack of a better way to put it, Soong hadn't figured out how to digitize emotions yet. That the emotional grid wasn't something that he had actually successfully built. He was still prototyping it, and Lore was a prototype. And in typical Soong fashion, rather than trying to build a prototype in a contained and concealed environment, he just decided to make a fully functional superhuman android and toss this prototype into it, and, well, we got Lore. Way to go. God, I just realized there's also B4. There's two other Soong androids hanging out there in the future. Jesus Christ. Anyways, sorry. So, <laughs> having said that, it makes perfect sense that Soong would do this to Lore. But we also get the very strong impression that Lore himself, it's not so much that he's evil, and I know that's a weird way to put that, because obviously he is an evil, villainous, antagonistic character. It's more like he is actually wrong. What I would usually qualify as insanity. Not craziness, not mad, but actually insane. That his brain quite literally does not work correctly. And we could see this, and again, Spiner really helps adding to this, in the instability with which he plays him. Someone who can go straight from pride to anger to fear to genuine concern. There's a line much later, which I'll talk about when we get there, where he says, I love you, brother. I think he means that. Despite the fact that he just tried to kill Data, I think he meant that. Because his brain literally doesn't work right. It was not designed properly. He is the byproduct of an arrogant inventor. And so he portrays this wonderfully in this whole episode. One of my favorite parts is when, you know, Soong admits that he's got this emotion chip and Lore reacts to Data. Now, Data says, I doubt your sincerity. I don't. I think Lore was 100% legitimate in what he was saying there. Being without emotions, being with emotions, it's a hell of a thing. You, you may learn to understand me yet, brother. And maybe this will be a thing. But then I think his own instability pushed him to disable Data and take his place and be the one who received the emotion ship. It should be mine. You should... Data? Data's fine. I'm the one you discarded. I'm the one that... And so he pushes himself into this. Keep in mind that for all of his portrayal and cruelty, it's clear that Lore had no intention to harm Soong until he got the chip. Sung says this over and over and over. He says it like three or four times in a row. This chip was not designed for you. It will not work for you. This is a bad thing. Lore, of course, doesn't listen, probably at least partially because he now has the chip. 
and also probably because of that main element I mentioned earlier, pride. I am flawed. No, no, I am flawed. No, I am flawed. No. Just refuses to see it, ignores it, denies it. No, I'm going to do this. And I think that, honestly, part of the reason that Lore goes into legitimately being horrific from this point onwards, and he will be from now until the end of Lore, you know, until his final appearance, I think it's because this chip basically makes everything worse. All that instability, all that emotional destabilization is now being magnified. Put it to you this way. Let's say you've got a pattern here. And this pattern is supposed to have an exact like shape here, here, and here at the three primary junction points, okay? And thus, if you put a center of light in the middle of this, and that's the power of the emotion chip, just hear me out. I, I, I know this is a weird analogy, but I think in patterns, so bear with me. So the light being generated from here should show a perfect, basically a Y shape, right? It should develop this perfect shape as long as everything is perfectly aligned with each other. Now, lore already isn't aligned with each other. So instead of these three shapes, we've got kind of distorted shapes, which are already kind of off and are making the light go in weird ways. Then you add the emotion chip in the center, setting off this bright light, and now you've just got this weird distorted image, which doesn't even approach something that is cohesive or, or strong or, or actually what it's supposed to be at all. So instead, what you have is all of the problems that he already had are now magnified and are so much worse. So he is far more willing to do things like murder and kill. He kills his father. I know his father was already dying. I know Sung was already dying. But he actively goes out of his way to attack him in a way that will murder him, knowingly and willingly, and then just kind of hums and sings to himself as he leaves. I don't think Lord would have been capable of doing that prior to the chip. He might have done it in a fit of anger. That's possible. No! And then... I feel like Lore before the chip would have realized what he just did in a fit of anger and been horrified by it and try to fix it. But after the chip? No, that's just magnified so much worse. And now he's just da 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 da, murder, murder, murder. Just my take on it. Before I go forward, I do want to mention one thing. There's this wonderful scene. This, I don't know who wrote these lines, but whoever wrote these lines did a great job. Data. There's a bit where Data, Lore, and Soong are all talking with each other. And Data realizes that he is not less perfect than Lore. And he says that. Twice, actually. And each time he says it with an almost sense of wonderment. I, I love this. This is actually very strong continuity. Because how much do you think it bothered Data? How much do you think that that was just something that was this black stain in his memory to know that Lore, the horrible, disgusting person who everything he knows about him means he's a villain who is wrong, was more perfect than him? To learn that that, that was just an incomplete, inaccurate equation that was just bothering him in the back of his mind for the last, like, two and a half years. To learn that that was not true. I am not less perfect than Lore. I love those lines because it really helps to show how a, a being with no emotion was severely troubled by a fact, or what he presumed was a fact. So, I'm looking at my notes here. Um, actually, that's about it, really. As much as I hate to say it, that's kind of the, the extent of the episode. Uh, there's a couple other little nice touches. I like the fact that Riker is the one who knows where Data's on switch is because of the events of Measure of Man. Very minor touch, nice stuff. Continuity doesn't have to be big stuff, you know? Little stuff like that is nice. And... Uh, 
then, you know, they fix it and they go and they handle the threat of the week off camera, by the way, just to show how important that was. And then there's that line about brothers forgive. And then it closes on that. Overall, a much weaker episode than I remember. Just like Data Lore, it is actually the portrayal of the characters and Brent Spiner's own interactions. And I think we could give some credit to Bowman as well, the director, uh, that really helps to buoy what is otherwise, I feel, a fairly weak episode. I hope you guys have at least enjoyed my thoughts on this. I'll see you guys next time.